You are listening to The Cumberland Road, and I'm your host, TJ Melanowski. The prison system, a waiter, working at a sawmill, bartending, being a deli owner, working sales, what one gains from these life experiences shapes molds and informs a faith that led into ministry. In this conversation, Reverend Byron Forrester shares with me a fascinating faith journey, rich with life experiences that leads to the connections between service and hospitality and ministry that calls upon humanity to become a people of joy. Byron serves two congregations in the western half of Tennessee and gave me a couple hours of his day to share his faith journey. Enjoy this conversation with Byron Forrester. Byron, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Before we start with your call to ministry, I know bits and pieces of your life and you've had some interesting jobs in the past. So I thought maybe we could we could open with some of the interesting jobs that you've had in the past and, and what stood out. I've been dying to ask you about the restaurant business, life of a bartender, all these wonderful things that come before ministry. Yes. Well, uh, the restaurant and bar business, that actually began when I was in middle school and I worked as a soda fountain, a soda, soda jerk for J.T. Lindsay's Rexall Drugstore in uh, McKenzie, Tennessee. And uh, I found that I enjoyed it. I liked the hospitality. I liked uh, having people come in, fixing things up. I liked the interaction with customers. And uh, so that kind of carried on later in life when uh, I moved to Memphis and I had uh, a part-time job out at uh, what was the old Shelby County Penal Farm. I was a, a classifications clerk. Now, what does a classifications clerk every morning new inmates come in? So I go down the hall to this room and I take the mug shots and get their their case histories. Uh, so you actually did interviews. Yeah. How old were you? I was 22. So like the first job out of college. Okay. And it was uh, uh, a lot of uh, interesting people that came through there. Some some of them were uh, actually very nice people and who did something stupid and then, you know, were were paying for it. And I liked it pretty well, but it was part-time, so I had to have another job. And a friend of mine, whom you may know, Mark Davis, yeah, uh, was working at a place called the Sawmill Restaurant. It was out on uh, Democrat Road, out, out in the airport area. And he said, uh, well, you know, you could probably get a job out there, too. And then uh, and he had vested interest in me getting another job because we were roommates. <laughs> 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 he wanted to make sure... <laughs> <clears throat> that rent was going to be paid, so I kind of, I did, and I uh, I found I liked the business a lot, the, the, 
the interaction with the people, uh, the, the, and the people that I worked with in there, everybody's kind of in the same frame of mind there, get the job done, and it was fun. We were, everybody out there, uh, it was all under like the age of 26, you know, so it was a blast. We had a, a lot of fun and uh, working there, and it was a, a good restaurant, and uh, the money was good working there. And uh, one of the things I liked about the business, and it was reaffirmed later on when I, when I went to work in uh, Overton Square at a place called Bombay Bicycle Club, was the people that you work with in that business are some of the most open and caring and concerned people that you'll find. And by open, I mean uh, complete acceptance of blacks, of gays, anybody who worked there. Okay, the, the identity that you work here, so nothing else is kind of important to this. But we enjoyed the, all the different personalities that come together to make something like that work. A true come as you are. Yep. Really. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I worked there long enough, moved up waiter, and then, uh, as they were known then, and then uh, attending bar, which I really liked, which really kind of took me back to the soda fountain days of uh, uh, making milkshakes and malts. And, uh, and I, again, you, you know, this uh, perception of the bartender listening to troubles or listening to people talk or being the ear. Uh, I was that a lot, too. Uh, people do want to talk to bartenders and tell them their troubles, whether, whether we wanted to hear them or not. <laughs> um, and uh, as I you know, looked back, once I entered the ministry, I saw how that was pretty good uh, training in its own way in terms of being a pastor, was uh, being able to listen to someone express themselves when they didn't really want to do that maybe with anybody else. Right, in a way, as a bartender, could be a confessor. Yes, yeah. exactly. And bartenders do a lot of that. <laughs> uh, but we um, eventually, and I attended bar at a couple of different places here in Memphis, and then eventually uh, opened my own place, which was not a bar. It was a, a deli and catering business uh, what downtown. Was the, what was the name? Bluff City Deli. And I used to do a lot of catering for events out here at the center. This was all during the 90s. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was, I enjoyed the independence of uh, being the owner and uh, operating and making sure everything got done my way. That was also the big problem because I was maybe not as good an owner as I sometimes <laughs> should have been and I couldn't fire myself. Uh, and the downside of that is you're responsible for, I'm responsible for everything. Oh, no, I'm responsible for everything. And uh, so there was a lot of uh, uh, stress, a lot of tension in those times. You know, every, you need to have a good day every day. If you have a, a bad day, a slow day in the restaurant, well, it takes like three good days coming up to make up for it. Right. And uh, So it was always up and down. Pretty steady, but, you know... I'd have a, a good year and a slow year. A good year, I'd pump back up again. And then, oh man, I don't know. And then there's more competition moving in downtown. And uh, 
And I was the deli itself was in an office building, Brinkley Plaza office building, and so I had kind of a built-in clientele there. And of course, I developed relationships with many of the people who worked there in that building. Very good, and uh, always enjoyed that, uh, being able to uh, have conversations with people uh, and. Being a place also where people could come in and talk about something other than work. You know, just, just, you know, they could unplug for a little bit. And of course, I didn't have time every, you know, every individual come in there. But uh, I liked the hospitality part of it a lot. Uh, in fact, years later, when I began to volunteer at Manor House, uh, which is a house of hospitality here in Memphis. Uh, it's a serve coffee and offer showers and change of clothes to people, basically uh, give people a place to be, <clears throat> people who are on the street, a place to be for a couple of hours a day and in this big shady backyard with picnic tables and chairs, and uh, nobody bothers them. Nobody comes along to tell them they have to move. It's just a very relaxed atmosphere. And so along with the, uh, when volunteers, new volunteers come in and uh, we would have uh, made reflection meetings afterward and what brought you here and why are you here? And uh, so I would say, I said, well, I came here because of uh, my faith. I've been, I feel like I've been called. I want to do this kind of ministry, which was all true. But I also began to realize I like the hospitality. Right. I right. like that still from kind of, coming forward from the restaurant, being able to host people. Well, let's pause the conversation here for a minute. So looking back on, on some of these jobs and, and growing up from manning the, the, the soda fountain to the Shelby County uh, penal system, to the restaurant, to owning and operating, catering, bartending, all these different things, what were some of the strongest skills do you think that you got from being around so many people and a variety of people? What do you think some of the biggest takeaways in terms of, in terms of your faith, but just, just life skills as well? I can make a great margarita. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Being able to see people come in for instance, uh, in, a, in a bar setting, you, you get to know your customers, you know, the names, you, and you know what the drink is going to be. You're already knowing that it's going to be a scotch and water. With a regular, you know, yeah. the regular customer. And sometimes you can tell by people coming in the door, <laughs> that person's going to get a whiskey sour. No kidding. You can read. <laughs> you could, you At can that time, of, you could read people by, what was it, their clothing? The clothing, their clothing, just the general... Uh, demeanor or personality I, I, I can't really get into explaining all of that but bartenders can kind of figure out pretty quickly interesting what's gonna uh without without a word being uttered yeah sort of, yeah and uh, i i can see that carrying over to the food industry as well people probably look at me come into a restaurant he's gonna order a burger and fries <laughs> he looks like a burger and fries yeah. guy yeah, I think I think uh, servers, because they're around people so much and take the orders, they can kind of have, have this innate sense of, of it's interesting uh, what's going to be going on back there. 
So I think that yeah, developing, learning how to do one-on-one relationships. And another part of that also is got a guy, somebody comes to the bar and you're sitting, and of course you're, you're talking and you're, that's part of it, attending bars, you, you, you engage in conversation. And, well, somebody else comes in, they're sitting over here on maybe this side, and so you're talking to them, and, and, and then maybe a third person is. And what you're trying to do is get these three people engaged in their own conversation. Without you. Without me. They get Somehow a topic comes up and then uh, kind of opens the door and you know, look over at this guy, and then, okay, they're, you know, they're okay. They're taking care of themselves here. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, I've got other people coming in now. Yeah. So that, uh, I think, looking back, then that did help me maybe uh, to develop uh, some uh, conversational skills or helping people to talk to uh, people who didn't know each other. Of course, it helps if you've got a drink in your cup, <laughs> kind of break the ice a little bit too. Yeah, your inhibitions are down a little bit. Maybe yeah. your stereotypes, your prejudices, maybe a little bit down. It's the common person at the counter, sharing time, sharing space, sharing a drink, and then you connect them perhaps with conversation. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's uh, people have very many interest in common so it's you know, sports come on you know it's easy to start about sports uh, in fact about the only topics that uh, were were off limit, and we were instructed by this uh, at the owners uh, topic off limit topic of religion and politics <laughs> don't bring up either one of those uh, but sports sports is both political <laughs> and treated like a religion yeah it is so what a dance that yeah that could be yeah but there's there's plenty to do people don't go you know into a place like that to have a bad time they want to right they're looking to have a good time so it's pretty easy to kind of right kind of help out along let me ask you this looking back so if you're engaged in three or four different conversations i mean i only have a one-track mind i'm not sure if i could if my brain could handle having conversations well a lot of it is just patter you know, kind of banal stuff that you're oh, kind okay. of warming not, uh, things up. Not deep. You know, hot just, enough out there. Okay. Don't ever say that. But, you know, those <laughs> those kinds of things that sort of break the ice a little bit and mm-hmm. put people at ease. And Now, do you think you were born with this skill or is it something that you had to hone over the course of years? Because some people, I admire it. I have friends, I know colleagues that have never met a stranger. Yeah. And I've always admired now, I that. I don't know what you mean. And I'm, I'm not... All, all that really uh, uh, outgoing, or but uh, uh, I, in other words, I probably I was in sales. I was not good at sales. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so it's not as if I could just go ahead and and uh, go into a conversation and kind of convince somebody that they should buy something that okay. uh, that I'm selling, or I'm just not as gregarious as a lot of people are. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when the playing field is level, yeah, then it's a little more natural. Then that's a good way, good yeah. way of putting it. Yeah. And you know, in in the food industry and the bartending, it you're in that service mode as well. So not only are you providing exactly. a listening ear, but you're also providing food and drink, providing and, the, the hospitality, right? And this also, I think, I, I know this has helped uh, when I'm at Manor House. And and as I said, the, the backyard, there's picnic tables, and it's lined with 
with chairs and very easy. It's easy to go down, sit down and just engage in conversation with someone. So let's talk about Manor House just for a minute, just for context for those who may be listening. What briefly is Manor House and, and how you got involved? How did you discover it? I got involved. Uh, I just, well, it was revealed to me. Uh, at the Germantown Church, we had a, if I'm remembering this all correctly, we had a mission fair where uh, different people from different organizations around the city, service organizations, were invited to come and talk about their uh, their organization, their nonprofit or whatever, and then they were in different rooms, different Sunday school rooms. It was, uh, you know, MIFA was here, uh, uh, food banks over here. You know, you just pick a room. And uh, I saw that one of them was uh, Manor House, and the, the person talking was uh, Pete Gatke, and I had become familiar with him uh, during some peace rallies when he was the speaker. Uh, back during the you know, the Gulf War, and uh, I thought, hey, this Pete Gecky, he, you know, he seems like a uh, uh, very uh, compassionate and, and intelligent and sound theological thinking guy. So I'm going to go in and see what what he has to offer here, and uh, he pretty much told us the history and what Manor House was all about. Uh, that they wanted uh, the mission is very simple just to have a place that uh, where people can come to for a while and just to get off the street and rest and as the name says it's it's it offers manna it's not uh, going to solve anyone's problems but it gives respite it gives them what they need maybe to get through the rest of the day Mm -hmm. and uh, so yeah the showers and there's there are systems to it somebody comes in i need a shower okay and uh we have a clothing room with all donations you know what size shirt what pants socks and everything and so they would turn in the clothes that they're wearing and they get a brand new set of clothes. when they got out of the shower they got a whole different set not a brand new but a different set of clothes and uh, meanwhile there's coffee being served in the backyard we also have uh, a table where people can come by and pick up socks and hygiene items, and uh, uh, and just sit around and enjoy uh, uh, the shade. There's usually, even in the hottest of days, there's enough shade back there that it's kind of bearable. And uh, and you were a member of the Greenville, or I'm sorry, uh, the the uh, Germantown Cumberland Presbyterian Church, and you had a mission fair. And this. This is your introduction to the Manor House. Yes. And so you're volunteering, checking it out just as a layperson, just as yeah. a member of the church. No, I was uh, I was already uh, in ministry at okay. that time, too. All right. I was pastored at the uh, Hopewell uh, Covenant Presbyterian Church in Benton County. Okay, all right. Mississippi. All right, we'll go back to that, but uh, yeah. we'll, we'll, let's stay with Manor House for a few minutes. So you're volunteering, and, and that... Um, what does that mean to you? Service, service. That hospitality. Uh, yeah, come in yeah. and see what it, uh, see what it is, and uh, I uh, take seriously Christ's call to serve and to do unto our brothers and sisters. And uh, Mifa 
it's great. Food bank is great. But here was this place offers an opportunity to serve and being face to face with the people right. that I'm serving right. and not, you know, a, a, in a bureaucracy or an organization or something. And it's so simple and so easy and so profound way to touch people is just to sit down and talk and and being able to offer them these amenities and see how they are changed. It's amazing what a shower can do for a person who hasn't had one in a week or 10 days and has been wearing the same clothes in 95 degree heat. Uh, it's you're changed. You're changed. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I enjoyed being able to be a part of offering that and seeing what it could do for someone. And as I said, it's Manor House in itself is not going to solve anyone's problems. We just try to make them bearable, a little bit more bearable for a while. Uh, you had mentioned uh, Mark Davis as as a friend. Uh, Mark has been a previous guest on the podcast, and he used the expression um, "cradle Christian" <laughs> uh, to, to describe himself. It was a yeah. self description. And uh, so, Byron, are are you a cradle Christian? And let's let's talk about those early days. Mark and I have very similar backgrounds, <laughs> and it's a similar. I mean, it's the same old Cumberland Presbyterian story. You know, our, our parents went to Bethel College, met, came and went into the ministry. Our moms became teachers. We grow up going to church camps in CPYC. We become friends. We become, you know, ardent okay. Cumberland Presbyterians. So, yeah, I was, uh, my dad uh, was a Cumberland Presbyterian minister, and so were several other people in his family. Uh, and mom was a Cumberland Presbyterian uh, uh, from over Savannah, Tennessee, and like I said, they met at Bethel College. Uh, so co- going to church, I, it was you know, <laughs> when did I not go to church? I you know, right. it was there. It was always expected. It's what we did. It was just part, not only just part of the this life of faith that we did. It was our life uh, as the family of the uh, the minister's family, and uh, so and. It was never occurred to me that I wouldn't go to church or stop going to church. I liked, you know, we were the whole Sunday school thing, being brought up, nurtured in the faith, learning the Bible stories the, about the mighty acts of God and 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 uh, how wonderful God is and this, how God has given us this creation, this place, this beautiful, beautiful existence that we have. It comes from God, and God is love. God loves everybody. That's great stuff to hear. That's great stuff to know. And, uh, and so being brought up with that, and, and again, I guess it was a family thing. My dad's family, huge family, several ministers, cousins, and around, they were all coming Presbyterians, and so it was not, again, it was this culture thing that uh, I was born into, the Cumberland Presbyterian culture deeply steeped I thought you it. were going to say cult. You know, there may be some people. <laughs> no. Uh, and uh, 
Dad pastored churches in uh, Marshall, Texas, and Olney, Texas, and then uh, he was called to be the director of the children's home in Denton. So we moved, moved there uh, from the time I was in the first grade through the sixth grade, my elementary school years, where we lived at the home. Wow. Uh, I mean, that was just, you know, part of our life, the home, the kids at the home, who I, I still remember them. They were our brothers and sisters. And uh, uh, we played with them, just like brothers. Um, you know, brothers would brothers, brothers f- play, fight, argue. Uh, uh, and I still remember. I, I'm not. I haven't been able to keep up with uh, any of them in many years. I'd love to. And since the general assembly is going to be at Denton next year, maybe uh, maybe that something like that would happen. Um, so anyway, that was more the Cumberland Presbyterian. Uh, life there, and uh, uh, we were always, as a family, you know, going to General Assembly. Dad's always going to Presbytery, descended, so I knew those words, and I knew the, I knew all of the vernacular, the vernacular of the CP Church and what people did, what ministers did, and hearing their conversations with Dad. Because uh, we're always there were always ministers visiting our house. <laughs> I guess because at the home people would come and visit, and particularly you know when the board would meet. Right. Uh, but wherever we went, it was always church related, and the talk was always about the denomination and and who was going where, who was moving here, and what this board is doing now, and how this is how the. It, and so I got, I just listened to all of that, and uh, I think. Some point during there, it may be clicked in me that I would be doing that some sometime. That this would be this that I would be having these conversations because they were so important to people. They were so uh, right. The words carried weight. The decisions did. impacted lives. It it's a value. Those conversations are a value. Yeah, yeah, and and you, uh, and you could sense that even as a kid yeah because these were people who ministers groups groups of people would come into a church and listen to my dad talk to them (laughs) so uh and then here are these other ministers who you know have these congregations too so there's something important going on here right and of course what was important was they were talking to people about god and people believed them People trusted them as uh, God is imparted to them and as their lives are, you know, helping them make sense of their lives as Christians about how, uh, what God does for us uh, from, from beginning to end. So the calling to ministry at a young age wasn't repulsive. It didn't. You didn't shy away from it. Now that came later. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I did. I always knew that, and I don't know if that was so much a call, but so much as a, this is what they're doing, and it's it's important stuff. And it's it, about God. It interested you. It did interest me. Yeah. It did interest me. Yeah. Uh, and you know, as I got older, you know, there was times when I would feel that. I don't make sure when it first began to think that maybe I'm supposed to be 
doing that too. Uh, at the time, in middle school, junior high, and we, we moved from Denton to McKenzie there, and we're at uh, you know where Bethel is, and where my uncle Robert Forrester was also a pastor of the of the church there in McKenzie. So here again, we're around all these these ministers and these uh, professors, and then there's uh, students who are involved in the Cumberland Presbyterian Church there in McKenzie who are ministerial students, and they're talking and they're they're involved in our youth program. So there's a big ex exposure, uh, even you know, even more exposure to the denomination. And I thought this, you know, I, I like the I like, and and <clears throat> so far I've only said men because there just really weren't that many women in in ministry per se, that's not to say that women, people and uh, women in my life did not have a big effect on me in terms of developing my faith, probably more of those than men, or at least more deeply than men did. But that's what I was uh, experiencing at the time. Uh, also, you know, dad being a minister, I also knew that uh, you don't get weekends. You know, we were at church. We never, other families would go places on weekends. We, <laughs> we stayed, we, we right. were at home. Our, our vacation, other people would go to all these lots of different exciting places. We'd go to General Assembly, which uh, <laughs> maybe, you know, there was some fun there sometime. And and if we did, when we did go off on uh, a, vac a family vacation, uh <laughs> It was often in connection, you know, we would, we would stay with other CP families sometimes. There was sort of this network of, you know, <laughs> we'd go visit them or, and, and practically family. Uh, but so many times on, uh, we were on vacation, a call, Dad would get a call, and someone had died, or there's an emergency of some sort back home, and we got to leave. We've got to go back home. Well, so I, I knew the life of the minister, and I didn't want it. I, I wanted weekends, and I wanted to be able to take some time and travel and get out and do stuff and not have to worry about uh, something as really serious as someone's personal spiritual crisis going on. You know, that's a lot to have to carry. Okay. No, I don't want that. Right. I, 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 and serious enough to shorten a vacation right. or even a business, a business trip, you know, mm -hmm. for you to go back home. I often wonder if there are young people and children and youth that may actually, who are in a minister's family, you know, into adulthood, almost resent the church for, for things like that because, you know, maybe, you know, you're in the middle of a vacation and then you have to pack up and return because somebody became sick yeah. or someone died within the church. Yeah, it, it was not pleasant, but, you know, couldn't really complain too much about it because <laughs> it, it might have been somebody we knew ourselves, you know. This is Mr. Burroughs, you know. It's, yeah. it's really, oh, no, True. not Mr. Burroughs. Yeah, so yeah. it was. Uh, um, so there, there were, as I saw, it's a, a lot of negatives to the ministry. <laughs> yeah, you got, uh, you know, shorten it up. I mean, you got to see the realities of, of a life in ministry and serving a local church as a minister and the wonderful gifts that come with that and then the sacrifices that come with that as well. Right. Uh, 
not only did you see it, but you experienced it. Yes. It's not like you were a witness on the outside looking yeah, in. Yeah, I mean, it was like you I said, it. we it was it was our our uh, life mm-hmm. uh, growing up. So you were saying that um, you got a good taste of that. There was a period in your life that you didn't want anything to do with it because you wanted to have some ownership to a long period <laughs> to to weekends and and vacation. Yeah. Well, something changed along the way. Yeah. Uh, at some point, at, in my mid to late twenties, I suppose I finally thought, well, maybe I should at least uh, go to seminary and see what it's like, and I did, and I uh, went like three semesters, and it just was not working. It wasn't clicking after three semesters. It just, I'm not really into this, and. This is kind of a, because I don't want it to sound like that I'm speaking ill of anyone or, I felt like at the time that uh, people who were in the seminary then were not totally engaged at all with the outside world. Students, faculty, both? Mostly faculty. I mean, it was almost, here's what you're studying theology, uh, uh, scripture, studying, uh, uh, maybe in counseling a little bit there was, but there was not a lot of what was going on, say, in maybe in the streets it was just not addressed the the real needs that people were having I did not see or feel like being addressed so for me there was just sort of a gap there Uh, I wasn't sure that I was being trained to meet the needs of people in the very real and visceral sense I was being trained to, to pastor a church. And now, we, we kind of covered some of the jobs that you've had in the past. So in, in the terms of chronology, where were you? Were you in the restaurant business? Yeah. Where, well, I had... Just for context. And another job swing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I went to work at a sawmill, a real sawmill. All right. Okay, I did that for a year, stacking lumber, cutting lumber, stacking it. And, uh, and that's... <clears throat> where I begin, and it gives you a lot of time for reflection, <laughs> and uh, uh, because uh, I mean, well, you got certainly got to pay attention to what you're doing. I wouldn't run a saw, but stacking the lumber, it comes down, but it's loud, and so you're, you know, uh, and uh, I begin to realize, you know, I feel that urge, that urge, the call, God is tapping me on the shoulder. Saying, look, and that's when I decided, okay, I'm going to seminary and just announced it to my dad and mom. So I'm going to, you know, eh, I'm going to quit my job in a couple of months and go to seminary. So what was the family reaction? Well, okay. There, it wasn't, wasn't this grouch, loud, <laughs> hallelujah, hallelujah <laughs> shouting or anything. Well, we think that's just fine. Yeah. <laughs> So Very real, subdued. Yeah, no real encouragement or discouragement. Oh, well, yeah. No, no, that was... Uh, yeah, not no real, not you know. Here's what you got to do. It was yeah. okay, all right. Well, we think you should. 
we're behind you. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I think let us know how it goes. <laughs> I think I can relate to the sawmill in terms of, you know, ha- I've had some jobs in the past where you're in a, in a way you're you're on your own, um, loud equipment in the vicinity, and and you're left to your own thoughts. Yeah. And I've done a lot of deep thinking. I still seek those out at times. You get a lot of deep thinking and self-reflecting uh, done in those times of just, uh, what, you know, where oh, am I? Can I can do it when I'm mowing the yard. Exactly. I, I used <laughs> or to, vacuuming the house. Yeah, I do yeah. a lot of vacuuming. Yeah, yeah that's, that's exactly what I'm talking about. I used to, used to have a landscaping and mowing business, mm. and my best thinking uh, would often come on the mower or, or weedy or just something yeah. about that drone. Uh, you know, you're not able to – you're not able to have conversations over a loud mower or loud weed eater, yeah. and you're typically on your own. There's no Can't one hear on the phone ring. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and you're left to your own thoughts and your own discussion and your prayers or whatever it may be. I can relate to that. Yeah, I've made a lot of good decisions that way. Probably some stupid ones <laughs> along the way too. <laughs> well, I can make stupid decisions anywhere. <laughs> you don't need the vacuum or the sawmill right. or mower. <laughs> um, and so that was. So I, I stopped, uh, quit. Maybe I just stopped. I just put it on pause. Mm-hmm. You know, I was. This is not. I don't want to. Did Did you walk away from seminary? I mean, disgruntled, or was it just not disgruntled just, at all? Just a timeout. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm wasting. This is not. Found out later. I really wasn't. Really wasn't a waste. But it seemed like <laughs> it at the time <laughs> that I just wasn't going anywhere with it. Mm-hmm. And so uh, back into the restaurant business, I worked in uh, I I over at Square, okay, in a place that's called Bosco's now. But uh, yeah. back in the '70s, it was uh, uh, Bombay Bicycle Club and sort of an upscale logger bar, and uh, if that's upscale, but uh, and I stayed with it. Worked in a, a few other places here around town. Uh, Belmont and Half Shell, Anderton's, which is an old Memphis institution that uh, no longer exists now, uh, uh, Huey's. Um, and then eventually I said, I'm doing this for other people. You know, I know what I'm doing. I know how to run these things now. I'm going to do it myself. And I did. And I was able to uh, get the help that I needed and the financing I needed to get it going. And uh, I owned the deli for nine years, mm-hmm. and, uh, and and you started from scratch. You didn't buy anybody out, right? Start started from scratch the hard way, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, actually, it was part of a, a guy was trying to get a franchise of these going. So he uh, was introduced to him, and uh, so it was going to be a. But the franchise part didn't work out. He didn't really know what he was doing. And here I've got a deli here, and it's not really working the way it's. So we uh, we got out. We just disassociated, and I took it on uh, as my own. And uh, what was your favorite part about operating a deli? Ooh. Well, I think that part is that interaction again, and being able. I always before. You know, as manager, you know, there are people who that I supervised, and I like that. It's a little bit different thing, I found, when the, the, you're actually paying these people yourself. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you tend to regard them a little bit differently, <laughs> and you really 
want the best out of them. <laughs> and you, uh, you try to provide an atmosphere where they are happy with their jobs and so that they want to do a good job. I, uh, a deli my size, and probably even now, you know, would be a, a starting position would be uh, minimum wage. And I refuse to do that. I refuse to pay. I'm just not going to do that. You people are worth more uh, than that. And I, uh, and plus it's easier to keep, you know, you can, you can be a little bit more selective in your hiring too. And uh, I was able to give uh, periodic raises at times. I, I did as much as I could financially for the staff. If, uh, if we had an incredibly busy day, I would give everybody cash bonuses and uh, give them as flexible. But at the same time, you know, you got to be at work on time every day. You know, you just don't. If you, you, know, if you miss a certain number of days, I'm sorry, you know, because this, this is a, uh, a working relationship. Here. Right, Work, right. Uh, I, uh, and I enjoyed being able to, you know, get involved with, if you have a staff of six or seven people, you're going to get involved in their lives. In their family lives, you just are, uh, because their problems become your problems. You know, the sick kids or, or a death in the family, those kinds of things. You're, you know, you're going to have to maybe uh, get by a day or two shorthanded. Uh, that means you can depend on the other other people to step up and fill in for Polly, who's having a rough time. That kind of thing. Uh, and uh, I really liked staff, and. We, we had a good product. We had good food. We had, uh, had good vendors that I purchased from. And I had uh, sandwich bread and pogies that uh, can only come from one place, no other deli, at least in the downtown area, had the same kind of uh, bread or, or the sandwich that I did at all. And so it, that was kind of neat being a niche spot down there. Uh, and, but it's highly competitive business, and because you're also dealing with fresh product, you're, you're constantly, you know, you, it's not like uh, books that are going to sit on a shelf until they're sold. If you don't sell uh, that lettuce. <laughs> got to throw it away. You got you to throw it out. And so uh, being able to, to, to keep that going and, and keep going enough, we had uh, – uh, a lot of catering, sandwich trays, fruit and vegetable trays for, for meetings. We used to cater board meetings out here. So making sure you gotta, you got to have enough of those coming in without having too many on one particular day that you can't handle it. <laughs> so it's a, a balance. balance. Yeah. You, know, you have one, you know, a couple of days a week where you're, oh, we're not doing much business here, and then suddenly you know, you got more than you, you're having to say no to people. Which really, really <laughs> hurts to do. Uh, so that up and down, that stress, that getting there, we got this has to happen today. These deliveries, that delivery, going to get here in time today for this big order, begin to just wear on me. And I, uh, after a while, I realized I don't have to do this. <laughs> I can do something else. You know, I'm like forty, and uh, so I sold it. And decided to just kind of sit back and look for, look for something to do. And what is that feeling like? So you're a forty year old man, business owner. Yeah. And you decided there's more to life than this. 
I'm selling it with no plan B. Well, the plan B was to find something else. I didn't exactly know yeah, but what no. it would be. I had there were there were some things I was interested in, some positions I knew that were out there that I would apply for. But I was uh, so knee in need of some time to let get to exhale and just relax that uh, I wasn't going to do any, I'm not going to do anything for a couple of months. And I didn't, you know, I just let it all. What did that feel like to be able rejuvenating, to rejuvenating, recharging, yeah. uh, bringing myself around back around. You recommend it? Yes. Yeah. I don't, not many people can, you know, can do it, can do three months anyway, or whatever <laughs> it was. Uh, uh, it turned out to be longer than that uh, uh, because of the the job. That was also the economy began to tank at that time too. So jobs were suddenly uh, suddenly nonprofits weren't hiring. Like I, I wanted to go work for a nonprofit. I thought that would be good. So still, I've got this thing of service, right? Being called by God to serve. I, that's that's uh, and I kind of spent my whole life not doing straight jobs. <laughs> the nine to five I, I did not. That never uh, appealed to me. And in fact, you know, I, I stayed away from, from all of that. Well, the ministry will suit you well then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but as it turned out, after a while, you know, after being turned down by different nonprofits who I found out were really just hiring from each other or promoting from within, I'm going to have to get a real job. <laughs> and I had a, a neighbor who worked for the Yellow Pages. And she said, yeah, we're always hiring out there. Come out there and you can sell Yellow Page ads. And uh, all right, you know, so uh, I did. And, uh, you know, got hired. And they started the intense training program and uh, were selling these ads. Uh, and I went through it. And it turned out I was really not good at selling ads <laughs> over the telephone. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, man, if I don't... I don't know what they're going to fire me, you know, if I don't start making something happen here. So I just went in to one of the supervisors and said, "Are there other opportunities within the Berry Company?" And that's what it was called, the Berry Company, that uh, that I could maybe move over to because before you fire me, and he laughed. Just, and then he thought, "Well, actually, there are. There's two part-time jobs here that we're going to put together into a single job, maybe." And, so within a, just a few days, I had a different job, and that basically gave me free range over the office. No, I didn't really have a supervisor. I was kind of making up the job as I went along, and so uh, I uh, was creative as creative as possible in finding things to do, like making sure all the office equipment works, making sure the papers and the machines and, and I was in charge of buying, purchasing. That was part of it too. Make sure uh, I had uh, uh, I bought all the office supplies, and you know, up until including uh, the copy machines. So, uh, and people didn't. As long as things were getting done, nobody cared what I did, <laughs> or where I was, or what I was doing. I, uh, but I did a lot of things in there. We, we had business expos, and I would go set up the exposition things. Uh, you know, kind of like what y'all do at GA when you have the. Okay, and um, uh, just sort of the guy, the guy who got things done. Um, 
okay, this is where it sort of sounds dramatic and I don't want it to be. All right. Uh, I don't have any music to play in the background. <laughs> so. <laughs> Uh, that's where I was working on uh, 9-11 and drove to, was driving to work when that happened. And uh, uh, the effect on me was like, you know, everybody else, the devastation. And I felt so helpless and wanting to figure out how to serve, you know, what was there to do? And uh, that bothered me a lot. I can't. I can't really, I'm out here, I'm, this job, it's okay, but what good am I really doing? So making, you know, their jobs easier by being the, the support person all the time. And that's when I began to, uh, God saying, okay, now, uh, now that I have your attention, and I understand the danger of saying that it took 9-11 to, to get me to go into the ministry. That's not it. It was a realization that God was calling me to be more responsible with my life. Here you are, you're wanting to help people, but you're not equipped to do it. So what are you going to do? And that's uh, what led me to go see uh, Barry Anderson at MTS and sign up to come back to school. That's a deep question. You want to do something but realizing that you are not equipped to be able to do it. You know, it takes a mature person to be able to (laughs) kind of do that self-analysis, that self-reflection of, I want to be here, but I'm not able to be here without help, without assistance, without study. For me, faith involves a great deal of self-analysis. And that's why I think... uh, um, you know, that it's a good thing to have doubts because your doubts cause you to ask the questions. And the questions are going to lead you to some answers. And if you stay with it long enough and let God talk to you long enough, then those questions will get answered. Those doubts will be dispelled. Isn't it? It's interesting to think that self-awareness and doubt really do go hand in hand. For me, they do. Yeah. Uh, I think so. And and it becomes not just having faith. This is what I come through my faith journey. It's not just having faith, yes. But it's also more, I think, for me different from other people, it's doing faith, acting out the faith that, that, you, that I say I believe in. I can believe it, but if I'm not doing anything about it, I'm not sure that I've got the right kind of faith or I'm looking at faith in the right way. Yeah, there, there's a difference between living out my faith and, and then agreeing with a, a concept of faith. Yes. There's a, it's a big difference. It's not faith unless you act on it. It doesn't become faith until you act, begin to act on it. There's that Presbyterian dance of both the, the head and the heart and the yeah. head and the feet. <laughs> well, as you said, I'm, I'm steeped in the CP church. I've been involved uh, 
intimately involved in all three of our institutions, the, the college, the, 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 the children's home, and the seminary. So, yeah, yeah, I'm pretty Presbyterian. <laughs> <laughs> so you started the educational path shortly after 9-11. Yeah, like the next semester. That was in September. I started school in January. So you've been ordained... Since 2007. What advice, what counsel would you give to somebody exploring the call to ministry? Listen deeply. Uh, and it's other than that, it's because the landscape has totally changed in 15 years for the church and for uh, what it meant, how to be a pastor and where to be. Not ministry. There's always going to be ministry to be done, but pastoring is a different thing now. It's changing. And, uh, I think the demands on a pastor are, are not what they uh, used, used to be. I think there are, you know, there's always been demands, but now there maybe there are in different ways. Yeah, the expectations uh, are changing from just a few years ago, and and um, there's a lot of adaptation, I think, mm-hmm. for, for those that, have, that are in ministry, for sure. And I think, as I said, I think minist- there's always ministry there, but there are so many other ways to do ministry other than pastoring a church. I mean, for my, all of my growing up, if you were going to be a minister, that meant pastoring a church or some job with the uh, denomination. It was, uh, but no, those those are just uh, there's so much to do out there. Uh, of course, chaplaincy, but uh, and then working with uh, people on the street at Manor House, or working with a, an organization that helps to uh, you know solve problems of hunger, and not just being a part of that organization, but being with the people who are hungry. Uh, not just behind the desk, but actually, and I don't mean handing out food, but somehow become intensely involved in the lives of the people that you're serving so that you understand that the pain and the hunger and the need. And that's a relationship, to be in relationship with another human being. In an empathetic relationship with a human being. You want to be in the relationship and then as empathetic as you can with that. And that takes time because uh, there has to be trust between you and me in terms of, of having a relationship. I don't have relationships with strangers. I mean, beyond the superficial yeah. or beyond, but I mean, a true relationship. I have to spend time with you to understand your context. Mm-hmm. And you, you have to do the same with me. Yeah. And that, that, takes, that takes time and then trust between the two. Byron, where do you see God in this world today, presently? We, we've spent some time talking about past and God working in your life in the past, but what about right now? We've, we've kind of alluded to people's needs and the struggles that they have in life, and they need to know that God is here and available and loves and cares for them. So where do we point people? We point people to the joy 
it is, and I'm almost overcome daily with what's with what goes on in our world with flooding in Kentucky and fires just burning, fires burning out of control. Can, uh, the ugliness in our society right now, the just meanness, the the rise of uh, Christian white nationalism. There's so much out there to be utterly frightened of, and for good reason. I mean, and I am. But you can't, uh, you don't give in to fear. You know, it's, it, even when it seems like fear, there is no other option. There is that option. And uh, so look for the joy. Look for where God is in where God is visible, where God is acting in other people, and in creation itself. I mean, looking just beyond you outside this window at those beautiful trees, like last week, those the, tree, the leaves would have been wilting down. What a great big difference, you know, an inch of rain makes to that. That's it's just a beautiful sight out there now. The trees look like they're interested in living again and not just drooping. And yes, that is part of uh, our, the connectedness of our creation is that, uh, you know, when the, looking at that gives me joy to see these trees being revived. And our connection with creation should give us joy. I, I'm outside a lot. I do a lot of uh, hiking and uh, whenever I can. And... I need to get off of concrete and pavement. I need to be on the earth. I need to spend time walking on the earth, that connection. And it is, it's, it is a real connection. And when I'm connected with the earth, I know I'm create, connected with the Holy Spirit. And I can feel that. And then our connections just continue to grow through the Holy Spirit, through the... Uh, our spiritual connections with our with our families, our friends, these relationships that we have, and we are all tied together to God through all of this. Uh, the passage that uh, was in Hosea eleven, uh, chapter eleven, verse eleven, at the end of that, when God roars and all God's children come home. The context, of course, was the, the, the Israelites who have turned away from God and, 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 God, and Hosea is giving the words of God as, as the, the father, the father, the creator, the sovereign, whose heart is breaking because his children are running away. In verse 11, he roars and all of creation responds. The birds, everything trembles with joy because God is speaking. That is... To me, that was very profound that uh, we are all connected and God's care and concern is for everything. So, but why stop at the earth, the universe? And uh, it goes, it can get really, God is so big. God is so big. And yet God is right here with us in this room. 
caring and hearing and concerned and and <laughs> giving me a nudging to keep <laughs> to be here. Keep talking, you know, say something that makes sense. <laughs> and uh, to me, this is just so astounding. And I try to you know, live in a way that I can enjoy the hope and the joy of the Creator, no matter how. Uh, I won't use that word. <laughs> how awful things are, and what are the despicable things that we humans do to the creation and to each other. I don't have to look very hard to find pain and suffering and hatred. No. But sometimes, you know, seeking out joy and finding out joy to run with your theme, to run with your train of thought. We can be the, as Christians, we can, we can be the people of joy in the midst of sorrow and, think, and, and yeah, to live out that I joy. I think that's part of our calling. Yeah. And, well, speaking of our calling, let's talk about the Cumberland Presbyterian Church, the Church Universal. Um, I ask a lot of guests, what do you think we're, we as a church are getting right and what do you think we're missing? We're getting it right when we provide a community that is open to everyone, that is not so much concerned with uh, self-sustainability in, in terms of financial or, or establishment, but a community that sustains itself through the love and the care of its members and helping members find themselves in Christ and their role in God's plan, if, if, if God has a plan, you know, that's uh, uh, for us. I think God has a purpose for us. And as far as plan, I think that might be two different things. Uh, but the purpose, we all have uh, the, the gifts, the things that we're good at, the things that uh, usually the things that we're good at are the things that also give us pleasure or certain satisfaction. And, if, uh, and so we, you know, we should look at those things and, and say, man, has God given me, helped help me develop this into something? Yeah. Uh, I've never thought about that before. The differences between the purpose and a plan. Because if, if you think about the catechism, the first question in the catechism, what is the, the purpose of humanity or yeah. human being? You know, it's to love and glorify God. And that's yeah. that's not a plan per se, as in what is the immediate goals and future of, of Byron or TJ, but it's more of a purpose. A, a purpose of of life. I've got to think on that some more. There is some differences. I like that thought. Well, um, I haven't faith, thought deeply about it before. Yeah, yeah. Acting faith, finding our purpose. These are uh, ways. It's that's. Discovering for ourselves the kind of life or the way of life that Christ calls us to live. And 
I think that like having a, a, a purpose, I want to be as much like Christ or live my life in Christ-like way and realizing that I'm never exactly ever going to be perfect at doing that, okay? Uh, you get points for making the effort. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, living in that manner and making that way of life the most important thing more important in my life than say I've got to go to work Monday through Friday at this place to make enough money to come home and feed my family and and do and 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 pay pay the bills and the mortgage and have a little bit left over to save and maybe take a few trips every now and then okay um, that might have to be part of your plan to be the Christian or your purpose here because that's how you're going to do what you do right right your 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 you know, the, the avocation, of the, your vocation is following Christ. How you do that may involve many different yeah. things. Yeah. I have plans for this evening, but that may not be the purpose of my life and the calling of my life. Not that it contradicts. No, but the calling of your life is going to affect in a great way what you do tonight or how you interact with, with the people and, and, and what you do. That's true. That's uh, true. That's true. I suppose. That's what I, I don't know what you're up to, but, but it does. God is going to have, and, and the way you live your life, the, the, the Christ in your life is going to have an effect on what you do tonight and how you react to people. I took you a little off sidetrack because um, I was digging into the purpose and the plan, but you were speaking generally about... Um, the, the focus on people and maybe less of the institutional side of the church. And you were about to get deep in that, and I put a sidetrack on you. I also put words in your mouth because you never used institution, but well, the, the programming, but the, yeah, the budget of, of the and, church is different than the actual people, and then I uh, interrupted you. So did you want to go back to that? The institution is a, is a good word. You know, yeah, uh, gets. I think the institutional of the church gets in the way of the church being the church quite often, and I think that has really hurt the church, it's particularly among uh, people, uh, young, younger people today are coming, in, 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 or, or even for the last maybe twenty something years, as uh, people are seeing the church more about you know the self, and this is not new stuff, but about self perpetualization than it is about living out the gospel and and turning away from the church because the church is not doing what you taught us you would do in Sunday school, uh, what you taught us about Jesus in Sunday school, we don't see happening, and and you know the answers we're getting is well we just don't do it that way or that's not going to work for us, you know. Um, uh, yeah, our, our, our but what's good's a Bible study if you don't do anything with the, what you learn at the Bible study? Uh, yeah, I've always envisioned to be able to. I'm not against Bible studies, but well, just to have it and then go home. Right to take the theme of a particular Bible study and and walk through it as a group, and then take what you've learned out into the local community mm-hmm. or maybe a far off community and be able to practice that aspect of your faith, there is clearly a disconnect yeah. from, from that. And if we're going to tell our children in Sunday school that God is love, God loves everyone, 
and uh, everyone is the same, uh, red and yellow, black and white. And kids believe that stuff. They take it to heart. And then as they get older and see, realize that that's, wait a minute, it's not really like that. Yes, it is. Yeah. Well, and I think as as Cumberland Presbyterians, we could actually lean into who we say we are in terms of we are both head and heart. Um, we are both the head and, and, and the feet and the hands. And so to linger only in Bible study or maybe only to linger in service. Yeah. I mean, you, you can't just do it, one it, or the other. Right. It, it's the both. And right. it's not either or. And uh, Bible study, of course, even if you're, you know, say you're not physically able to get out and do something, that doesn't mean Bible you have wasted your time going to Bible study (laughs) at all. I mean, we all need to develop our spiritual lives. All we we need is an excuse not to attend. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, yeah, we take what we learn, and and not just out in the physical world, but spiritually as well. Maybe, you know, this this is going to... Learning, hearing these verses and hearing them explained and discussed is going to help somebody with a deep emotional problem that they've been experiencing and haven't known what to do or how to deal with it. Now may have an idea of, uh, uh, of how to get through a situation. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, the church is important in that, greatly important. It's the best place to be for helping people get through situations when we do it correctly. And together. And together without judgmentalism or saying, you know, well, if you hadn't done this, this wouldn't have happened to you. It's about how can I help you now? Right. I think the togetherness is a piece because it's easy to think in isolation. Uh, You were referring back to the uh, sawmill, uh, me and landscaping business that... Um, I think it is good to live and think and reflect and converse with God. Uh, But you cannot isolate yourself from the community of faith because some of those thoughts and prayers and ideas need to be tested, measured, and incorporate the community. And going, I don't know, TJ, that's a little off. Uh, Just like you, TJ. (laughs) I think that's important as well because it, you know, to isolate ourselves uh, can create a great danger. And I think we can do that as small groups. I think that we can do that individually as well. Yeah. And it's a danger. You know, I have the answers. I have the complete understanding. I've studied it on my own. But I think we measure that along with our colleagues, our peers, and, and other disciples in terms of our study, our thoughts, our ideas. Um because it could turn into something better. So, and it may have originated with you in a sawmill or uh-huh. a mower or in your garage or driving or whatever it may be, but it's going to grow bigger than you because it isn't about you. It never right. was about you. It never was. Yeah. Byron, what are you, uh, what are you reading? <laughs> I read uh, different, right now, uh, uh, mysteries. I, that's my, my uh, guilty pleasure reading or mysteries, or sometimes uh, historical nonfiction, uh, uh, or historical fiction, too. But uh, I'll read a couple of different kinds of books. I'll kind of move around biographies or autobiographies. But I'll, um, 
there are some uh, uh, other books, literature that are not just mysteries, but so far are, I think, uh, uh, help to reveal uh, God and, and people, stories. I think stories are just so important. And sometimes, you know, I'll read uh, different stories written by, by different people. Um, and uh, because they are the, the accounts of people living a life that God has provided for them and how they react to that and how they are in relationship with others and what happens in their lives that helps them develop into a more a truer person or a truer form of the person that God calls us to be and, and how that happens. Uh, I think, uh, you know, um, you mentioned, uh, I think, earlys or in the suggestions about uh, some uh, maybe movies or books or something. I yeah. read. A book I did, that I read not too long ago, uh, Wendell Berry, who is a, uh, a pastor and a theologian and a farmer and a, and a poet, is a great great author has a, uh, a book uh, about a called Jaber Crow Jaber Crow is a guy who was a barber in a small town small village and it's, it's kind of like everybody in the town comes to see him and they share with him and talk to him and share their stories kind of like a, a bartender uh, you know, people sit in their his barber chair, or could just come sit in the chair in the barber shop and sit and listen to other people's stories. And it, it's uh, <laughs> Wendell Berry would disagree with this, and he says so in the forward of the book. But it, it does touch in some deep theological tones <laughs> in there, and it affirms a lot of the theology that uh, I I perceive too about uh, how. Uh, we as humans interact with the creation and how badly we do that and how we have uh, um, corrupted the land for our purposes when the land was already giving us everything we needed. And, uh, but we're not satisfied with what we need. We want what we want. We want to monetize everything. And so we developed... And, uh, industrialized farming and uh, we're ruining the earth with it there's definitely a layer of stewardship I would think a theological concept there Byron what are your hopes for the church as we look into this century and we're still early in this decade where would you like the church to be well I have no doubt that the church is going to exist. I have no idea what the church is going to look like. I don't know that uh, the. Uh, I, I think the, you know, the brick and mortar church is it's it's here going to be here a long time. I think, but it might not eventually. I think the church is going to uh, is going to be, always be, communities, a community of people who worship God together, who trust each other, who care about each other, and more importantly, are open to everyone and totally accepting of everyone as uh, 
a sinner just as depraved as I am. <laughs> just a different kind of depravity, maybe. So that yeah. change, does that scare or excite you? As the church changes in the future, is not going to look the way that well, it does. You know, it's today. it's scary because I've grown up with uh, the institutional church. I mean, I sat here and talked about an hour about how much <laughs> this denomination has meant uh, to my life. Right, and uh, so it's. Uh, uh, the you know, churches are going to know, everybody knows, there's no secret, churches decline greatly, precipitously every year. So, I mean, at some point, you know, it, uh, but I think that point is long away from here. But ministry continues. How are we going to do ministry? How is the church going to be a community? I don't know yet. I see places like Room of the Inn who provides a ministry and yet the, all of the volunteers that are working there are have formed their own community. That might be a church. Uh, I think it may begin to look like that, that ref, uh, an organization, a group of people, a community who work around uh, a particular ministry. Yeah, what is it about this group, small or great, that draws them together? I think those are good measuring sticks. What draws them together is uh, this yearning to meet and find and discover the meaning of our lives and this, this what we call God, something that is greater than us, more than what we are, because you know, we... We seek that. We are born seeking that. And, and, and if we seek it, you know, it, it, it must be there. Uh, to put it very trite, there's a, a, a song by Amy Lou Harris that contains the, the line, uh, if there's no heaven, then what is this yearning for? So we, we're yearning together. We want to do this. And we've learned through Jesus Christ that God is calling us together in community and that we're all a bunch of sinners, but God loves us. And that, you know, we are. I mean, we just are. You know, that's going to get addressed somehow. <laughs> but what our concern is not to be with the kindness, but helping people move through those difficult times, those those sins, whether you know, whether whether the, what we're going through is self-caused or caused by other people, but we have to help people move through the difficult times, and part of that is is helping people understand that we are able to do this because of the grace of God, and we learned that through Jesus Christ. Yeah, there's a fullness of life being offered. You know, Jesus yes. says, "I come to bring life, and bring it abundantly." And we believe that's grace. Yes. Yeah. Byron and I enjoy our time together. I appreciate getting to know you better and you being vulnerable and sharing stories. And uh, it was exciting to hear about, um, you know, the joy and the service, hospitality, those threads that have run through your life. Well, well, thank you. I I appreciate the opportunity. I have no idea how uh, this was going to go, and uh, <laughs> likely have uh, uh, 
said some things that people aren't going to agree with or say, why don't I on there? <laughs> but that's too bad. That's who I am. Byron, thank you. Thank you for listening to The Cumberland Road. As you enjoy this podcast, subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or your favorite podcast site. In closing, here are some words from the prophet Hosea. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with bands of love. I was to them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down to them and fed them. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and no mortal, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. And they shall go after the Lord, who roars like a lion. And when God roars, the children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, says the Lord.